Coming up on today's show, we've all seen it. You go to the grocery store and it just costs more. The price of food has gone up and it's forcing Canadians to change the way they shop. Whenever vaccine mandates are brought up, the immediate response from some is, you're violating my rights. I have charter rights. Do you? And Canada invoking 1977 treaty with the United States on pipelines. It's all about line five and making sure that it's not put out of commission. I think all of us recognize, especially when we hit the grocery store and do a little shopping, uh, things have changed uh, in recent times over the course of the pandemic and otherwise. It's not as cheap as it used to be. Uh, We've seen prices go up on a lot of different commodities and uh, it's forcing people to rethink the way that they shop and do things a little differently than they had before. This is a a new report we're going to talk about from Dalhousie University's Agri-Food Analytics Lab that surveyed Canadians on how they feel about shopping right now and what they're noticing and what it's causing them to sort of reconsider when they go to the grocery store. And joining us with that is Janet Music, who is the Research Program Coordinator with Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie. Uh, Janet, is your last name really Music? Indeed, yes. That's the coolest last name I think I've ever heard. I thought Thank you. It's she, she must have changed it. <laughs> oh, so is it no, usage? Yes, it is. Music. Oh, okay. Yes, I got you. Okay. Um, you did some really interesting work here, basically speaking with Canadians, a lot of Canadians, we should point out. Uh, just tell us about the survey you conducted. That's right. So, you know, we talked to uh, 10,000 Canadians in September, um, and we asked them if they noticed that if their grocery bill has increased over the last six months. And, uh you know, the majority of us have noticed that. And, you know, when we look closely at what's happening, we think that food prices are up about 5% over this time last year. But when you're speaking with Canadians, some of them are reporting they think uh, it's up higher than that, specifically in some specific areas, right? That's right. So a lot of people have been noticing the price increases at the meat counter, especially. And so, you know, bacon has been up uh, significantly. You know, some people are reporting a dollar a slice per package, but other cuts as well. I know. And, um, you know, bacon is something that we most of us enjoy, you know, on the weekend or, you know, semi-regular. But other cuts of meat up 30 percent. So it's it's having an effect, not just on, you know, on all Canadians. Everybody is affected by food prices. That's the thing. Nobody can escape an, uh, an increase in food prices. Nobody at all. Um, what about other commodities? What about other products? Are we seeing similar increases? It doesn't seem like, you know, you would think fruit and vegetables might typically see a spike like that, but they haven't seemed to be quite as badly affected. No, and I think that might be a seasonal a seasonal yeah. condition, right? So we're looking at the last six months, you know, we that would have a seasonal impact on fruits and vegetables, but certainly those kind of center of the store aisles where we get our cookies and our oils, things that need to be shipped here from our trading partners or packaging that comes from trading yeah. partners, that's also increasing the price of food. And not surprisingly, it's had an effect on the way that people are shopping, right? What did they tell you in terms of how they've had to do things a little differently in recent months? Yeah, so it seems like everything old is new again, right? So people are returning to couponing in a way that maybe they haven't uh, pre-pandemic. 
comparison shopping with flyers. So, you know, a lot of people used to go on Saturday morning or Sunday morning, get a big load of groceries, and they're done for the week. Now people are taking the time to go in more often, maybe go to different stores to get things, and taking, uh, making use of the opportunity of those best before dates or use up tonight, you know, you can get real good deals that way if you're, especially at the meat counter, you know, up to 50% off if you cook this steak tonight. And so people, I think, are, are going in more often and going to different places to get their whole load of groceries. And I don't know about you, but at my house, uh, every day, it seems, we get flyers from grocery stores. Tons and tons of flyers. They're doing a lot of advertising. Does that have an impact? I know I, I'll flip through them once in a while, but are some people watching those closely to see where a deal might be found? That's right. Um, absolutely, people are doing that. And, and you know, the younger generations, and so I come from the generation where I like to sit down with a cup of tea and read the flyers. Younger generations are using their phones or using their laptops yeah. to find flyers online. And really, really comparison shopping. So if you want to get a brand of of cookies at one store, but it's on sale at another, then you can kind of make use of that. It takes a little bit more time, of course, but in the end, I think price is the one common denominator that we all kind of uh, shapes our behavior in the end. And that's that's what it sounds like. It's people are putting in more work, more time, and more effort to grocery shopping, whereas they used to just sort of go and do it. Like you say, you take your one trip a week, whatever you're done now, it takes a lot more research, a lot more planning, and a lot more selective buying, I guess. That's right. And, you know, the pandemic really had uh, an effect on how people approach food in general. And so, you know, we were all in lockdown for a period of time. Different provinces had different lengths of time. It's pretty extreme here in Nova Scotia. And people really took to their kitchens, you know, making bread, cooking home-cooked meals, trying grandma's recipes. And, you know, this return to the kitchen and restaurants were closed. You know, people started shopping more and buying more things from the grocery store. So it really, you know, people were really noticing not just the price, but the quantity of food they were getting per dollar. And so we we have COVID to either thank or blame for that, you know, whatever your perspective is on, on cooking. What do you see in terms of, um, typically when prices go up, they don't often come back down. Um, but do you think this is a, a trend that we're locked into increasing prices or once things stabilize with the pandemic and all the shipping concerns and things like that, we might see a return to a little more stable pricing? That's the hope. And so the pandemic will end. Um, you know, it has to end. Yeah. And so and when, you know, when we really reduce those restrictions, restrictions in ports and at borders for, you know, people who ship our food through trucks and through ships, then hopefully it kind of uh, eases the congestion or the bottleneck at certain points and that we're able to get commodities, but also packaging more freely. Um, So that's the hope. Um, Certainly 5% is very high. Normally it's between 1% and 2%. So, uh, but, you know, it's hard to predict when that's going to happen. Um, One last one before I let you go. We talked a while ago about companies trying to deal with their increasing costs and getting more money from the consumer without actually charging more money, but instead putting less product in the package and selling it for the same price. Is that a trend that's continuing? 
Oh, absolutely. And so we've we've been calling that shrinkflation, um, you know, and I've been calling it kind of the stealthy way to raise prices because yeah. it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over months um, in which, you know, the cookie shrinks, but the volume increases. So the packaging remains the same. And then slowly the volume of cookies shrink and so the packaging shrinks so then it's not quite in your face oh these cookies of the price has raised exponentially but people are really noticing that and for the first time we've kind of hit this threshold of shoppers who are kind of wondering what's happening three quarters of canadians have noticed shrinkflation so that's that's quite a lot of people yeah exactly and i think uh, we're raising more awareness about it um Janet, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, great information. Thank you very much. That is Janet Musich. I would pronounce it music if I were her, but it's pronounced correctly as Musich, who is the research program uh, coordinator at uh, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And uh, yeah, it's, I think we've all noticed it. And a lot of you weighing in about the price of steaks. No question. Steaks and bacon, a lot of the texts about this morning. Uh, and I've definitely noticed it with steaks. I don't, I don't know if they've doubled or not, but it seems like maybe they have. I'm not sure about that. All right. We're going to have a discussion here that I hope will clear up some things for some people because it, it's. I'm no expert in this, um, and uh, I would like a little clarity. But when we talk about vaccine passports or mandates or certificates or or whatever the case may be, or an employer saying, if you want to work here, you must be vaccinated, like the Edmonton Public School Board said yesterday. If you're going to work in an Edmonton Public School, you need to be vaccinated as of the middle of this month. A lot of people immediately result uh, or resort to, this is a violation of my rights. I have my rights. You can't force me to do this. Now, we need some clarity on exactly what the Charter of Rights and Freedoms says what the reasonable restrictions can be, who it applies to, all these sorts of things. So let's have a discussion about that and see if we can't clear up some of the gray areas here. We are chatting with uh, Jennifer Koshan, who's a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary. Jennifer, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's go through this. Charter of Rights and Freedoms. A lot of confusion and a lot of people say, you can't deny me this, you can't deny me that. First of all, It applies essentially to the government, right? I mean, that's where the Charter of Rights and Freedoms has control. Exactly, yes. So the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms applies to government actions and government actors, which means if the government passes a law, that's the sort of thing that can be challenged under the Charter. Um, Or if you have government acting in the role of employer, uh, like a school board, um, or, or another government department, then potentially the actions of the government as employer could also be challenged. But for private employers, charter does not apply. Okay, so when we're talking about any private business, any non-state-owned business, and, and there seems to be some confusion whether, well, it's not a private company, it's publicly traded. doesn't matter. That's still a private company, right? And any of those private companies, the rules are different when it comes to the charter. That's correct. So you cannot challenge a private company directly under the charter. There is human rights legislation, and human rights legislation applies to businesses, employers, service providers, uh, but the charter does not apply. Okay. Um, Some of the provisions in the charter that get thrown around a lot, life, liberty, and security of the person. 
Um, people talk about that a lot when it comes to vaccines and vaccine mandates. What exactly does that state, and could there be a legal challenge based on that section of the Charter? So Section 7 of the Charter says that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived of those things um, in a way that contravenes the principles of fundamental justice. So that's a bit of a mouthful. Let's break it down. Uh, What that means is that if someone is going to argue, for example, that their liberty has been infringed as a result of the vaccine mandate, again, they can only do that if they're challenging some sort of government action, like like a vaccine mandate that the government has imposed. And what they have to do is show that their liberty is violated by that vaccine mandate in a way that contravenes the principles of fundamental justice. Now, what that means is they have to show that there was some sort of procedural unfairness in imposing the mandate, um, that it's arbitrary, that it's overbroad. These sorts of ideas are encompassed within the principles of fundamental justice. So it's not enough for a person to just say, my liberty has been infringed by this government action. There's more that they have to show. Okay, what about the right to equality? That's in there. That That's something that we all have. We all need to be treated equally under the law, correct? I mean, is that not the key qualifier here? That's right. So everyone has the right to equality, but that right is restricted to certain protected grounds. So gender, race, disability, religion, sexual orientation. Um, again, government actions cannot discriminate on the basis of only those grounds that are protected. So if someone was challenging a vaccine mandate under uh, the equality rights section, which is section 15, they would have to argue that the policy somehow discriminated against them, for example, on the basis of their disability or on the basis of their religion. Okay. So when we, and, and there are some concerns because certainly we're not all being treated equally when you bring in a vaccination certificate. Some people are allowed to do things that others aren't. Um, that doesn't necessarily violate any charter rights. That's correct. Unless they can show, unless the person could show that the different treatment can be connected to one of those protected grounds, um, they won't have a Section 15 argument available. Um, when it comes to um, Section 1 of the Charter, that's the one that I think a lot of people skip over when, when they go looking for what, what charter rights of theirs have been violated. It sort of it gives the government wide range to bring in different sort of restrictions to the Charter. All of our rights can be subject to reasonable restrictions, right? That's exactly right. And so Section 1 of the Charter says that it's open to governments to place reasonable limits on our Charter rights and freedoms as long as those limits can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And so what that means is that governments have to have a very good reason for placing limits on our charter rights, and they have to show that they've done so in a way that is reasonable. So they can't go too far. They have to appropriately balance um, individual interests with the collective good and those sorts of things. But I think it's very important to remember that no charter rights or freedoms are absolute. It's always open to the government to place reasonable limits on those rights. And, you know, and I just got a text from somebody saying, yeah, that's the key word, reasonable. That will be decided by the courts ultimately, right? I mean, we we can argue about it all we want, but there will be a legal standard set here. Yes, that's right. So it's up to the courts to decide if governments have acted in a way 
that is reasonable. Um, Courts have said that where governments are responding to some sort of emergency situation, we should give them more leeway. And so they've mentioned things like war or famine or pandemics as the sort of situations where courts are going to be somewhat more deferential to the, to the choices that governments make and to an analysis of whether they have acted reasonably. Okay. Now, the flip side of this, and a lot of people, this has happened over the last month or so, a lot of people saying, well, I'm vaccinated. What about my rights? Why do I have to be, you know, subject to restrictions and things like that? Because some people refuse to be vaccinated. Um, it's the same thing, right? That's the equality argument. Right. So, so people um, who think the government has gone too far in restrictions for the vaccinated would also have to show, first of all, um, either that their liberty had been infringed in a way that contravened the principles of fundamental justice or that there was some sort of discrimination at play. But again, I think it would be difficult to connect the, the, any differential treatment here to a protected ground under Section 15 of the Charter. Okay, now, uh, one more. And I've seen this going around quite a bit lately. Some people talking about taking the government to court for a violation of their right to life um, because of the way they've handled this pandemic. I think the legal standard there, they would never get over. But is that a possibility? Are we entitled to protections from the government doing things that may endanger our lives? Well, what I almost hear you say is the government not doing enough here to protect our lives. So I think the question is whether government inaction can sometimes be challenged under the Charter. And that, to me, is a very interesting question. It's uh, We normally think of the Charter as uh, protecting us from government actions rather than requiring the government to do things under under our law or, or policy. And so it's kind of an untested area. Normally, it's only if, if government has taken certain steps in a, in a particular direction, but they haven't gone far enough that we could challenge their inaction as violating, for example, the right to life under Section 7 or the right to security of the person, which protects uh, the right to health. So it's, it's very much an untested argument, but it's, it's not one without some possibility. Interesting. Okay. I said last one, I lied. Um, When it comes to employers saying you cannot work here if you're not vaccinated, Edmonton Public School Board brought in, we know other employers have. Um, How does that work? Can you be denied the right to work under the charter? Is that okay or is that a violation of your rights? So again, we have to remember that the charter only applies to government. And so it would only be if someone worked for the government or in the public sector that they could bring a charter argument. The other option would be human rights legislation, which applies to all employers. And key thing to know there is that human rights legislation only protects against discrimination. It doesn't protect other rights and freedoms like privacy or liberty. So again, what an employee would have to show is that they had somehow been discriminated against. So for example, if you had an employee with a disability and they could show that their disability prevented them from getting a vaccine, then they might have a good uh, human rights argument that the vaccine mandate discriminated against them. But that's the kind of argument they would have to make. Okay. Um, And, you know, as we said, uh, the people that are happiest about all of this are lawyers, because there are going to be countless challenges, I would think, um, uh, against some of the decisions that have been made. And we'll just have to wait and see how it all plays out. But governments have massive legal departments. I imagine they've walked through this pretty carefully before taking these steps, haven't they? 
Oh, yes. So governments, you're, you're absolutely right. Governments have lots of lawyers on staff. They also sometimes contract work out to private private lawyers. And I would imagine that they would have obtained legal advice before taking any of the steps that, that we've been talking about this morning. Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting discussion. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks very much for having me. You bet. That is Jennifer Koshan, who's a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary. And and listen, don't get me wrong. These will be um, taken to court on a number of different bases. We'll see that. We'll see all kinds of court challenges to some of the things that government is doing, some of the things that employers are doing, and we'll have to wait and see where the law stands. But as you heard, the whole charter argument, um, a lot of people think that, I mean, the Charter of Rights is basically to protect you from action from the government. That's what it comes down to, essentially. The government, you know, when they're passing laws or, or doing whatever it is that they're doing, they have to be very cognizant of your charter rights. But when it comes to a private business, it's different. They're not held to the same standard. So, um, you know, if a, if a restaurant says they don't want to have people in here who aren't vaccinated, that's well within their rights to do that. And you don't have a constitutional challenge to that one. As much as you want one, you don't. Let's talk Line 5 and the future of Line 5 and what this announcement yesterday means to the future of Line 5. As I told you, Canada has formally invoked the 1977 Pipeline Treaty with the United States in a bid to prevent Michigan from turning off the taps on Line 5. The Foreign Affairs Minister said um, that Pipeline Treaty guarantees the uninterrupted transit of light crude oil and natural gas liquids between the two countries. Okay, so let's get some details on, on how this works and what it might mean. We're going to chat now with Dave Yeager. Dave, of course, is an energy policy analyst, an oil and gas writer, and author of From Miracle to Menace, Alberta, A Carbon Story. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Uh, good morning. So this treaty, um, how come I haven't heard of it before? If this has always been sort of in the back pocket, we went through Keystone, now we're into Enbridge Line 5. Why yeah. is this suddenly being leveraged now? Well, this is a throwback to another era when security of supply mattered. And that's the, the, the future of pipelines has always been an environmental date uh, debate, not an energy supply debate. But back in the 1970s, during the OPEC years, uh, su- supplies of energy of any kind were critical. So the, the treaty dates back to there were big discoveries in Alaska on Prudhoe Bay in the United States, and they wanted to get this oil to the lower 48. So the original concept was a pipeline from a, from one end of the United States to the other, very much like Line 5, which is, carries oil from one end of Canada to the other. So the treaty was was put in place to ensure that if America did build a pipeline from Alaska to the to the lower 48, that Canada would honor the treaty and never interrupt their supply of oil. And so we've never, we've never really had to deal with it. Right, yeah. There's been lots of oil all over the world. And I think if you look at the negotiation, this treaty came up when, uh, when, uh, when Whitmer brought up the Line 5 issue. And, of course, it is a security supply issue. It's not just an environmental issue that everybody focuses on, as they have certainly for most of this century. It's security of supply for southern Ontario and Quebec and northern Michigan and refiners in eastern Michigan right into uh, uh, in that area. But, but this is, we've changed the channel. So I think the government of Canada has, and, and the producers and Enbridge have always known about this treaty. 
But in this negotiation, since it started, they've, they've been trying common sense and mediation and everything. But because when you play the big chip, there's no other chip behind this, I guess, in the negotiation. If this doesn't work well, that's probably the end of the trail. They've been trying to get the the state or the government of, of uh, the United States involved. They've been trying to get D.C. involved. Of course, Whitmer and Biden are, are soulmates. And yeah. so uh, Washington has very strategically tried to stay out of this. But this, they can't do that any longer uh, now that this, uh, this international treaty has been put into play. Okay, so is this a, a last-ditch Hail Mary, pull out all the stops, and maybe it'll work? Or does the language in this treaty give us a pretty good leg to stand on here in this country and saying, hey, you've got to follow this and, and we've got a shot at saving Line 5 because of this? Well, I don't know what if, if if they do it anyway. I don't know what you can do beyond that. Right. Uh, you know, this is a nation to nation treaty uh, between the countries that are supposed to be the greatest friends on earth, the longest unshared border. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Instead yes. of all the stuff we grew up on, you know. And so, if in the end that the United States uh, government, this, and this is going again, this is going to D.C. This is out of Michigan's hand. If the government of the United States decides that this issue, this state issue in Michigan, supersedes a transporter international security supply treaty. You know, at that point, I don't know what we can do. We can't exactly invade or anything like that. But it does it does really put the whole thing into another arena. Of course, because it is uh, transnational, not, not, uh, not just state, uh, this, of course, brings into question treaties from all over the world. I mean, we've got issues of, of gas supplies through the UK. Ukraine and Europe, which is so it'd be it's the sort of thing that that does really bring the focus back to where it belongs is well bad. Hey, that dog, that that ship is sailed. Sure, it is. Is it a pipeline? Is there a risk of a spill? Of course, there's a risk of a spill. But the point is, is that you've got literally millions of people in southern Ontario and parts of, of the United States, depending on this, to live through the winter. Is that is that still important or not? That's the, I think that's really the nadir of what we're talking about here today. Um, how exactly does it work? Okay, because we've had court challenges, we've had mediation talks, we've had all this stuff. Now, from my understanding, all that goes away now, and the two federal governments are forced to sit down and come to a resolution on this. Do I have that right? I, I believe that's the that is why it was the last chip. That's why they tried mediation first. They tried to yeah. deal with it at the state level, tried to deal it with uh, with other levels, and uh, pol- the politics of the environmental politics of uh, of of line five are huge in Michigan. It, go, it goes back to the regrettable spill uh, of six B, I believe, was the pipeline in uh, Kalamazoo in, in twenty ten. And and there's the belief that energy is boundless and ener- and uh, everywhere. Uh, that there's never going to be a shortage, but I think it's it's sort of interesting if you're framing an events in Europe and Asia right now, where in fact there is our energy shortages occurring in the 21st century, if you can imagine. And, and the whole fundamental of uh, modern civilization is when you hit the switch on the wall, the power is supposed to come on, yeah, right? Yeah. When you want to fuel up your vehicle, there's something to put in it. And so if you need energy, whether it comes from coal or oil or gas or wind or solar, is secondary. So we've taken supplies of energy and this uh, this century have become taken for granted, so we can pick and choose. But this is a situation where they're going to put uh, the supply at risk. For example, when this originally first came up, the producer said, uh, you know, that originally the the uh, oil went 
1949, the pipeline was built from Hardesty to Superior, Wisconsin, which is on the west end of Lake Superior, the lakehead. And then it went by tanker to Sarnia, and then they put in Line 5 because that was impractical. So everybody said, well, we can ship by tanker. Well, you can't do that year-round in the Great Lakes. Or we can ship by truck or rail. Well, okay, and this goes back to all the debates we've had about pipelines. Well, well, exactly. we'll get them some oil or import it down the St. Lawrence and on and on and on. The, the alternatives are not ultimately insurmountable, but this disruption in cost would be enormous. Yeah, and the environmental concerns remain. Now, you mentioned um, the energy problems, and we saw what happened in the U.K. and other places, but, but it wasn't that long ago Joe Biden was going to OPEC and saying we need more oil. I mean, it's that disconnect. Um, and even yesterday, Whitmer saying she's profoundly disappointed that Canada would take this step. It seems like they're immovable on this. Well, there's politics and then there's facts. I mean, I, I believe if our history in reading up on this treaty, I believe uh, Biden voted for this. That's how long he's been in, in Washington. I believe he voted for this treaty Treaty as a junior senator in the, in the late 70s. Hey, but that was how many elections? Sure, you know, exactly, you know? yeah. And Whitmer's got her her, her tribe in, in Michigan. She's uh, ran against the pipeline. She's got election coming up. And, of course, that it, it, the, the point is, is politics is about finding your voters and making sure they come out. Uh, this is the challenge with the energy debate in the in the in the twenty first century. It's become because of climate and the environment has become so politicized. Yeah. And that energy has been take of any kind has been taken for granted. Uh, common sense left the barn uh, years ago. And so so it uh, this this treaty, because of the structure of the treaty and the way it was it was meant to protect American energy supplies from one end of America to the United States. The, the line it was meant to protect is identical to the Line 5 issue. So we'll just see how much more, uh, how many more blinders can be put on <laughs> as the history of this treaty is, emerges and why it exists in the first place and why the United States signed it. This is, uh, could be, would hopefully be embarrassing at some point. Well, at some point you would think, but like you say, logic and reason has sort of been abandoned in, in the face of politics here. And even if it, even if it hurts you, economically and, you know, in terms of your energy supply, it doesn't matter. If that's what the political base demands, that's what they're going to do. Uh, there's a lot of that going around. Uh, yeah. but I do think I do think with what we're seeing um, with the global energy situation in unfolding, um, a lot of it's to do with, with, with climate politics. A lot of it's to do with COVID. I mean, there's some restart issues all over the place. But if you look at the shortage of natural gas in Europe, well, they tried to, they tried to develop natural gas uh, by fracking in the U.K. years ago. Boris Johnson, the current U.K. Uh, prime minister, is on the record of supporting fracking. But again, that was before the wind changed, the political winds changed. Uh, uh, Francois Legault, uh, for example, he was all for LNG exports until he thought it might cost him votes, so he killed uh, the second project in July. So th- it's incredible. But if you get enough people that are suffering from energy poverty yeah. or energy shortages or skyrocketing bills, I mean, that's the great thing about politics is the old, you know, the old saying, find a parade and get in front of it. So exactly. as soon as enough people say, well, wait a second here. I mean, I didn't know that I wasn't going to be able to get gasoline. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, and, and you have to risk, you have to risk weight it. There's the perception that pipelines are unbelievably risky. But look at the risk we tolerate every day. 1.2 million people die every day in road accidents or annually in road accidents. Nobody's banning the automobile on and on and on i mean it is uh there's this separate category of uh of of environmental risk that that, that apparently is unacceptable yet we put up with enormous quantities of risk on multiple quarters every day that aren't as politicized 
Any idea on timelines? We know the pace that government moves at. <laughs> Ridiculously slow. Any idea how long this might take to get some sort oh, of resolution? T- <laughs> with the grace of God, it'll take forever. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean well, no, but maybe, maybe they'll just let the tunnel go ahead. I mean, Anchorage yeah, yeah. has put uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on the books. To, to do, uh, I call it the sarcophagus method, is to tunnel under uh, right under the lake bed, put a big uh, concrete liner in there, and uh, replace the line. And of course, they block that too. And so it's it's really really it's the same thing as, as Europe. Europe short of LNG, and Quebec says you can't have it for environmental reasons, so they're burning coal instead. I mean, if you're looking for common sense in this whole debate, it, it doesn't make no. any. But the good news is about uh, about when you look at all the other issues that are facing Canada and Washington are on a given day. That is one thing your 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 analysis that uh, this could take a while is pretty sage. Actually, <laughs> I, <laughs> this, uh, I think a year or two could slide by without an outcome, and it, it, extra- it does it as you said in your intro, which was well done. It would appear this extracts it from the current process, which is uh, which is good. Yeah, get the politics out of it for a while at least. Dave, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Well, it's, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for the call. Hopefully, I was helpful. Absolutely, certainly were. Thank you very much, Dave. Bye. That is Dave Yeager, who is a. Uh a researcher and a writer on oil and gas issues and an author. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.